and the, uh, the rest of you and turn in your Bibles to the book of 2 Corinthians, chapter 5. It's good to see you guys. Glad you're here at church with me today. Yeah, I'm glad it works. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 16, and we'll read through to the end of the chapter. This is an important passage. I'm really glad I get to teach it. Paul writes, Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Lord, we receive all of this gladly, and, and we take none of it lightly. This, this is holy ground we're treading on. We rejoice in the gospel in this passage. We rejoice in this exchange of our sin for your righteousness. We, we, we thank you for the newness that you bring. We thank you for reconciling us unto yourself. We thank you for taking our sin, for becoming the embodiment of our sin so that it could be done away with. We, we glory in all of this. We rejoice in all of this. We thank you for giving us, um, for giving us this passage of scripture to feed our souls today. We thank you for this mysterious and, and promise, this overwhelming promise that's beyond us that we could become the righteousness of God in you Jesus, bless your church with these truths. We love you. Bless us. Amen. 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 As Christians, we have a new perspective. We have been given a new perspective. We see things differently. And this is because we, we have been made differently. Uh, we've been made into something different than what we were. We have a new way of seeing things because we have been made new. And our lives are now to be spent in a newness of life. And we're, we're, our lives are now to be spent proclaiming the news of this new perspective. We get to talk about the truth of reconciliation that we ourselves have experienced. And we get to say, God makes all things new and I'm one of those new things. And you can be one of those new things too. When Paul writes, therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. He's, he's summarizing several things he's already been talking about earlier in 2 Corinthians. You can, uh, you know, afterwards go back and, and reread 
chapters 3 and 4 and 5 and listen to the sermons if you want to. But he's summarizing things that he's already been talking about. Just a few verses before, he said that um, there were those who glory in appearance rather than the heart. And we're not to be like that. We're not to to just judge according to the image. We want substance, not just the appearance of substance. Before that, in chapter 5, verse 7, Paul said that we walk by faith, not by sight. Therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh or by just the things that we see. We do not make decisions only on based on sensory perception, what we see, what we hear, how loudly our stomach growls, things like that. We live our lives according to our faith, according to what we, have, we believe, which is according to what Christ has spoken to us, no matter what kind of situations we're thrown into. At the beginning of chapter 5, Paul had said that the things we see, like this earthly tent that is our current life, is temporary by its very nature. And while we live in it, we're waiting for a more permanent home that is eternal in the heavens. Um, and before that, you go back to chapter 4, he wrote, we do not look at the things which are seen, which is hard because that's kind of what looking is for, you know? But he says, we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. That's a new perspective. That's a supernatural perspective that must be granted to you by the Spirit of God. It won't make sense any other way. And this perspective, how we no longer regard anyone merely according to the flesh, it's sourced from a new and elevated regard of Jesus himself. And that's the second part of verse 16. He says, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. We used to know Jesus. There's people that he's writing to that, that may have known Christ in the flesh during his earthly ministry, right? When Paul says we have known Christ according to the flesh, he means um, in person, prior to the ascension, before the resurrection. There were people that knew Jesus of Nazareth. John, First uh, John, chapter one, the apostle writes that which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched. He's saying we knew Jesus according to the flesh. The apostles, who are probably the the we in Paul's writings, we have known Christ according to the flesh. They had known Jesus in that way, and even Paul had encountered the, the living Christ that he had already described in 1 Corinthians. He, he was shown Jesus as one born out of time, but Jesus had been known according to the flesh by lots of people who were alive at the time of this writing. This is written in the 50s AD, um, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul said that there was more than 500 eyewitnesses of the resurrected Lord that were you know, there at the same time, and most of them were still alive when he was writing these letters. So people value that knowledge as they should. I would imagine that would be something you'd kind of you'd kind of brag about now and then. It's like, oh Jesus, yeah, he had this, he had this freckle right here, and I know because I was like right there with him. You know, you would you would be happy about that. And Paul says, yeah, we we have known Jesus according to the flesh, but we don't know him that way anymore. People value the knowledge of Jesus in person as they should, but Paul, he's echoing Jesus here when he told Thomas, blessed are those who believe having not seen. There's another way of knowing Jesus. He says, we don't know Jesus like that anymore, according to the flesh. We know him in a new way. We don't see him. We can't reach out and touch him. And with Paul, especially in this part of scripture, something that is known only according to the flesh, that's the opposite of knowing something according to the spirit. We know Christ now, in a new spiritual way, by his transforming spirit. 
This was and is hard for many. It's natural to think of knowing Jesus according to the flesh as superior, as something far and above how we understand Christ now. For instance, um, you know, we, we would think that being one of the disciples or being eyewitnesses to the, the resurrection, that those people's faith were somehow different, better, more wholesome, more fulfilling than yours because all you do is just read the Bible and go to church. And you're like, that was the real stuff and we're just imitating it ever since. And that's exactly the opposite of what Jesus says about his distance, about his ascension. We know Christ from a distance in the fellowship of his body and communion and prayer in the word. And this is by design. Not only do we have Jesus in the upper room telling the disciples that it is better that he goes away because when he goes, he will send the spirit to us to lead us into all truth. But if you, if you took that passage out, you would have the evidence of the gospels that would tell you it's better to know Christ according to the spirit than according to the flesh. Jesus was known according to the flesh by lots of people and they killed him. Jesus was known according to the flesh by Saul of Tarsus. Paul had heard about Jesus. He knew about this rabbi, this te his teachings, his disciples call it, causing all these problems. And that did not save him. The Pharisees knew Jesus. Herod knew Jesus. Pontius Pilate knew Jesus according to the flesh. That kind of knowledge doesn't make us new. It's a knowledge that is not unlike the belief of demons that James talks about. Now, we want people to believe in Jesus, but we don't want to mistake a simple acknowledgement of his existence with the faith that involves our submission to him and that, that faith that results in our transformation into people that resemble him, that's a different kind of faith. We read, even the demons believe and tremble. Even Judas knew Christ according to the flesh. Paul says, that's not how we know Jesus anymore and that's not how I know you anymore. I don't know you just according to the flesh. I know you as a new creation in Christ. Deep cries out to deep. The spirit of God in me allows me to judge the world outside of me according to his vision rather than just this vision of the flesh. So we have a new way of seeing things now. We have a new perspective. But it's only because of this new way we know Christ in this saving intimacy. The spirit ministers Christ to us in um indwelling us, growing the life of Christ in us. And after all these things that Paul has been talking about for these last few chapters, these new ways of seeing the world, these new ways of hoping for the next world, are really nothing compared to the new way of being that we have in Christ. Heaven is God's presence. And he says, that is being formed in you now. You must not think that Christianity is a religion that tells you how to think and then that's it. That's where it ends. It's not just about mind tricks, nor is it just about behavior for a time. What we have is transformation. In other words, it's not just about thinking good thoughts or imagining a better world. It's about being made new in every way possible. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. It's humbling to come to verses like this when I get to teach through Scripture. Because uh, it's not just like this is an important verse in the chapter or in the letter. This is 
a key verse in the New Testament, right? There's like John 3.16 and Romans 6.23, right? Wages of sin is death, gift of God is eternal life. You have God is love in 1 John 4.8. And then you've got this verse. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. We know this one and we cling to it. You, you probably have this verse memorized. If you don't, you should. Um, and, and then it's exciting because this is your testimony. You're one of the anyones. If anyone is in Christ, this is your life story. If you are in Christ, you are made new in the truest, deepest sense possible. If you are in Christ, the things of old, the, the things of sin and shame, the, the stuff you worry will keep you from God's good graces or maybe even from heaven, the sins of your past and the guilt associated with it, these are old things that have passed away. More than those things more than any of the, the, the trappings of the old life, the old you has passed away. One of the most beautiful and, and strange parts of the gospel is that it's not just about the death of Jesus, though it is almost entirely about the death of Jesus. It's about the death of you in Jesus. Therefore, I have been crucified with Christ. That's a weird religion we have, you guys. It's a strange one. I have been crucified with Christ. My hope is in my death in Jesus. That's what Paul writes. He explains baptism as our burial with Jesus. We experience death and burial with Christ, who then raises us up to newness of life. It's, the, it's all about the resurrection of Jesus, but it's your resurrection in Jesus. By being in Christ, we are united to him in his death, in his burial, in his resurrection. If you're in Christ, in all of those things, you are a new creation. You've died, been buried, and have risen again. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. If you are in Christ, the old things have passed away. The old self has passed away. The old way of seeing things and judging people has passed away. This is and ought to be very personal. It's easy to think of, you know, heaven, big picture stuff like that. Uh, heaven coming and earth fading away as, as these big events that are far off and therefore not very applicable to your life and how you live. This is about the individual. This is extremely personal. You are a new creation. The language of new creation and old, old things passing away, it, Paul didn't come up with this. He borrowed it from the Old Testament. And, and it's always, almost always used in that big picture, global scale renewal kind of sense. Think Isaiah 65, 17. I'll read you that verse. It says, See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. New creation, old things, passing away. You see where Paul got his material. He's not that original. Uh, Isaiah 43, verse 18, it says, For, Forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. Paul's speaking the same language here. But in passages like that, you know, it's talking about heaven and eternal life and eternity and these great big ideas. And Paul is saying, yeah, all this talk about heaven, about glory, about the fading of the old, the renewing of the world, all of that starts now for the person who is in Christ. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. He's a brand new work of God. And, and all, of, all of that big glory heaven stuff, you know, it starts now for the person who is in Christ. And none of that can be found outside the person of Christ. God creating a new heaven and a new earth is part of what's coming. Yes. And he's, but he's making a new you in Christ right now. Now, instead of only observing 
the tension that exists in the world or, or seeing, you know, the world now versus the world that's to come, you know, our tent versus the, the mansions of glory that are coming or good versus evil and the cosmic forces that exist beyond you and all that stuff. In the gospel, we see that like the big picture stuff is the individual who is saved by the blood of Jesus. The, the war against good and evil, the war against the flesh and the spirit, it's, it's not out there, it's in here. The former things that have passed away, they're your sins. He is taking care of your sins. The new creation, the new things that God is doing, he's doing them in you. He's transforming you into the image of the Son of God. He's building you into his temple. He's creating in you a clean heart and restoring a right spirit within you. And he's doing this and has done this by placing you in Christ. You are new. You have been made new. You are a new creation. And this, this new creation, it's not just something that's, that's accomplished for us out there. It's something that is being done in us. We are growing into the fullness of the stature of Christ, Paul says. At the end of the book, Revelation 21, verse 5, all the way at the end, the Lord says, Behold, I make all things new. Now, it's unusual that I will say that you need to see yourself more in Scripture. Uh, that is not something you hear from me a lot. Very often people read the Bible with an eye to find themselves as if they're the hero of the story and they miss a whole lot of Jesus that way. You know, you read the Psalms or the Old Testament prophets and ask, what does this mean for me? And you're, you might come up dry. You're asking the wrong questions. As a rule of thumb, it's far more fruitful to realize that it was Jesus who said, these are they that speak of me. And then ask Jesus, show me yourself. He'll answer those kinds of requests. But here's the exception. I want you to see yourself in this passage because you are in Christ. I think Paul is making things personal on purpose. And when we read what are nearly the last words in the Bible where Jesus says, I make all things new, we can say he's talking about me. He's talking about me. He, he makes me new. He has made me new. I am the new creation in Christ. In verse 18, Paul says, Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. As new creations in Christ, which you are, you have a new identity. You have a new family. Uh, you are a, a, of a new race, born again by a new father, descended from a new Adam, so it should come as no surprise to you that you also have a new job. You have a new ministry. You, you, the new creation in Christ, are appointed as an ambassador, as one who has the ministry of reconciliation. Reconciliation is the res restoration of, of previously estranged parties. It's making friends out of enemies, is what it is. And in Christ... God is reconciling the world to himself. The world is far from God. And Christ's ministry, his mission was and is to bring it back into union with God. And now he has handed this mission, or more accurately, the message of the mission, to us. That's what it means when 
when he says that he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. In a few verses, Paul will call us ambassadors for Christ. We're the ones who go and say that God is declaring peace, that God is reconciling the world to himself. And this is, this is the way the ministry of Jesus is described. Can we just appreciate that for a second? That, that the ministry of God is reconciliation. It is the ministry of reconciliation. The ministry of God, the word of God, of, of Christ being formed in our lives, of his spirit moving in the world and building his church is not primarily a, a ministry of like correcting slight errors, you know? Like it's not, it's not a ministry even of like, of, it's not a fix-it shop. It's not rehab necessarily. He, what he's doing is he's declaring peace. It's not to correct, it's not to condemn but to reconcile a world that we might see as beyond hope of reconciliation. God and the world that has rejected him have what some may call irreconcilable differences. But God would disagree. He says that's not irreconcilable. When John 3 says he did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved, he's saying the same thing. For God to condemn the world would seem just to many people. We have examples of the flood in Sodom and Gomorrah, and, and we see what, uh, you know, what condemnation looks like. And we look at the world in which we live now, and we're aware of, of differences that we might be tempted to call irreconcilable. Could God be friends with such as these. I mean, we have in scripture, even friendship with the world is enmity with God. And you might have like a footnote going back to Paul from James there and be like, unless God makes the enemies his friends. Ah, loophole. Could God love a world like ours? Oh, he can. He does. What's more, <laughs> he has moved heaven and earth to reveal this love, declare this love and make this good news of his power to reconcile known to the world that he is saving. There's good news that we get to tell, and it includes the fact that he is not imputing their trespasses to them. That's what Paul says. That's our message, or at least part of it. God is not willing that any should perish. God is not obligated to give you what you deserve. He can have mercy instead. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. The message is he is not counting their trespasses against them. That's how it says in the ESV. He's not counting your sins against you. For the one who is in Christ, all those old things have passed away. You can tell people who struggle with the idea that God could ever forgive their sins. You can tell them, oh yeah, he doesn't count those ones. You need to fulfill that, you know, fill that in with the rest of the gospel. But he says those ones don't count. He is not counting their trespasses against them. If you are in Christ, those sins don't count against you. Sure, he calls you out of them. He calls all men to repent. If you are continuing in your sin, you need to ask very seriously whether or not you are in Christ because it doesn't look like it. If you are continuing willfully in sin and not repenting, then you bear no, none of the signs of being in Christ. But if you are in Christ, all of those sins of your past are done away with. They are gone. Former things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. In the new creation, with our new king and our new calling, we, we declare in our new ministry as, as ambassadors the, the words of the, the Christmas carol, glory to the newborn king, peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. Who'd have thunk? We have a ministry of reconciliation. 
Jesus Christ came to save sinners, not just from the penalty of their sin and not just from sin itself, though he is powerful to save from both of those things, and he does, but he came to save sinners to himself. Jesus is making friends of those who persecuted him. He is making friends out of his enemies. This is what he has done with you. This is what he is willing to do with your unsaved family members. This is his ministry, and this is the ministry he has given to his new creations. God has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. You are a reconciler. Or rather, to use the words in the next verse, you are an ambassador who brings the news of God's friendship. Verse 20. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. This is what preaching is. Uh, whether it's evangelistic and, and preaching to unbelievers or, or preaching to the people of God, Within the church, this pleading, this imploring and speaking on behalf of Christ, it, it's pleading with people to, to come to the Lord and be reconciled to him. This is also one of the differences, if you've ever wondered, between teaching and preaching. And you know, you read in the Gospels that Jesus went around teaching and preaching. It's like, is that redundant? Is that the same thing? It's not the same thing. Teaching is explaining, like what I'm doing in this sentence right now. Preaching is compelling so that you act. Be reconciled to God. That's preaching. A lot of people get to this place in the book of 2 Corinthians, commentators and scholars and people, and they see the way that Paul is talking to this church, and they conclude that despite the fact that he calls his audience saints, he must be addressing unbelievers here because this really sounds like an altar call, an evangelistic plea, be reconciled to God. Uh, or, or sometimes they'll, they'll read this as a reference to something that Paul did in the past, and he's just kind of being obscure using the present tense, saying, I am compelling you, I am imploring you. That's a really confusing way to read this passage. I think you'll agree that the simplest explanation for Paul's words here is that he is speaking to Christians and calling Christians who have problems, because that's how we are. He's calling people who have besetting sins and sins that so easily entangle them. The, he's calling Christians who have real heart issues that are still being worked out, he's calling them to be friends with God and saying, be reconciled to God. If you think that's only a message for non-believers, you haven't been in this club for very long. That's the message of the gospel for you, for me. It's for every person you've ever met. God is pleading with you through Paul, through his word, through preaching, through various other means. He is pleading with you, be reconciled to God. His message is of his desire to befriend his enemy, which is you. The message from this pulpit given to this church, you know, the, the messages uh, that I preach are, are, they plead with you, hopefully, to draw near to God. And I'm not going to assume that anyone would come to that verse in James, you know, draw near to God and he will draw near to you and say, well, that's just evangelistic. That's just for unbelievers because I'm already near to God. Well, yet yeah, you are, and this is also for you. You know, we don't come to verses that say things like flee immorality and say, well, that, that's just for unbelieving pagans because my sins are already forgiven. No, the saving message of the gospel is the same message that sustains us. The saving message of the gospel is the sustaining message of the gospel. 
And what Paul says to unbelievers, he could say to struggling believers as well, cling to Christ, put on Christ, look to Jesus, be reconciled to God. This is the call to you. And as new creations who have been appointed as ambassadors for Christ, this is also the call from you. When I say you are sent, and you might wonder, where? To do what? It's this. <laughs> you are a new creation, and you are an ambassador. Please make note here that we do not say, you are a new creation, and you might become an ambassador if you're very good. Or we, we do not say, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation, and then someday you might get promoted from the, the position of new creation to ambassador, and you get to wear a little badge. It would be better to say that ambassadors are what God creates. When, when God makes something new, he makes it a representative of himself every time. That's the way the world works. That's why the created world speaks even of his eternal power and Godhead, because what God makes speaks of him every time. He's made you new, and now you speak about Christ. It would be, uh, yeah, it would be best to say that ambassadors are what God makes, and he doesn't make anything else. He takes lost people and he turns them into his representatives by forgiving their sins, by not counting their transgressions against them, allowing for the former things to be forgotten and creating them a clean heart. He makes people ambassadors. He takes sinners. He makes saints. That's what he does. You are an ambassador of Christ. You are a saint. You are made holy by his blood. You represent Christ in this world. You do this by your actions, of course, by your love for other people, and by especially speaking, he says we have been given the word of reconciliation, it's by sharing the good news of God's intention to reconcile the world unto himself. You have been given a ministry of reconciliation, and that the word of reconciliation, the gospel, has been entrusted to you so that the world can know there's a God wanting to save it, who is powerful, mighty to save. His arm is not shortened. You have the news that God is making friends out of his enemies. That's good news. You have the gospel that says Jesus died for you and Jesus lives for you. Jesus is preparing a place for you and Jesus is pleading with you through me. Be reconciled to God. God is extending his offer of friendship through you to the world that he is saving. A few verses back, Paul said that it was because of his awareness of the terror of the Lord and the realities of the judgment seat of Christ, before whom every person would stand, that he felt the need to persuade men. As ambassadors of Christ, we are also moved by this reality. And later on in that chapter, he said, the love of Christ compels us. And we, who have been shown such grace, such mercy, such love, are also compelled by the love of Christ to make these announcements that peace is offered to you, and you need it. Now, peace is really only good news to the one that realizes there's a war going on. You know, uh, if I declared peace right now, it would mean a lot less than it would have, like, in the mid-40s. Uh, the all have sinned part of the passage, uh, followed by the wages of sin is death message. That must preface the second half of that verse, the gift of God is eternal life. It's a good message, and it's yours to give. Now, if you're still a little uncertain about what the message is, then clean out your ears, or exactly how you're supposed to be giving it, 
of exactly how this befriending of enemies happens. How does this take place? Look at the next verse. It sums it up nicely. This last verse in our passage, verse 21. It says, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is what has been called the great exchange, our sin for his righteousness. A trade that took place on the cross where where Jesus took your sins and he gave you himself, of course, but it's it's his virtue, his righteousness, his goodness, his holiness. Um, It's more, of course, than that. It's more than your sin for his righteousness. It's you for him. As you can see in this verse, we do not just receive righteousness. We somehow, through some mystery of faith, we become God's righteousness. A change takes place at the core of your being, which, of course, is what being made new means anyway, right? These aren't just behavior issues that are treated. These are identity issues. Just like verse 17 didn't say, if anyone is in Christ, he is granted one more chance. You know, if anyone is in a new Christ, he is marginally better than he was before. You know, the the grace of the gospel penetrates to the heart of the matter, and it creates a new person. And that new person is identified as the righteousness of God. If anyone is in in Christ, he is a new creation. This didn't happen for free. The casting off of the old and the creating of the new, it costs something. And that's the way a trade works. He became sin. Now, the sinlessness of Christ, it's, it's spelled out for us in this verse. He, the Father, made him the Son who knew no sin to be sin for us. Jesus Christ knew no sin. He never sinned a day in his life. When it says he knew no sin, it's not saying he didn't know what sin was. Of course he did. He had to look at it whenever he opened his eyes. But it means that it, to know in an experiential sense, to be joined with the thing known, Jesus of Nazareth never, ever, ever, ever sinned. 1 Peter 2.22 says he committed no sin. Hebrews 4.15, it says he was tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. 1 John 3 verse 5 says in him is no sin. Okay, solid foundational Christian truth. That's bottom line, non-negotiable Christian doctrine stuff. Uh, Even his accusers couldn't come up with any good fake sins to accuse him of. The biggest one they came up with was the fact that he made himself equal with God and therefore without sin. So his biggest sin is that he said he didn't have any sin. But it was this sinless one who it says was made sin. That is an unusual way of speaking. It's difficult to understand. And it's important, I think, to consider what this does not say. It does not say that he was made to sin. His sinlessness was not compromised. Even on the cross, he was perfect and innocent. But a change took place nonetheless. He he became sin somehow on the cross. It says it He became sin. He became the embodiment of sin. This makes less sense to us, I think, than it would to a culture that still had animal sacrifices. When John the Baptist sees Jesus and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, he's touching on the same issue as what we see here. In the Jewish sacrificial system, you know, you might have a lot of lambs, you might have a whole flock of sheep, but not everyone is a sacrifice. When you bring that lamb forward and put the sins of the people on the lamb, it's not just a lamb anymore. It's something else. It becomes a sin offering. And once the sins are placed on that lamb's head, the sins then become judgeable. And what's more important, and I think I'm coining this word, they become get-ridable. 
Okay, Once the sins are on the lamb, the sins can be done away with. Christ became the sin offering. He became a sacrifice. He became the sin offering, embodying sin itself so that sin could be judged. But more importantly, so that sin could be forgiven. He became sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God. This is the new creation. This is what he has made you. It is not a restoration of Eden. Okay, think the Garden of Eden, everything was perfect, gardening all day, not wearing a whole lot of clothes. Okay, it's just like, you know, your, your dream life. And, and you think, that's, oh, that's what we're restoring to. No, no, that, that was when the time of right, the righteousness of man was intact. You become something far better than that. It's not our righteousness that is restored. That's the filthy rags. In fact, we're not restored at all. We're resurrected. We're completely recreated. And what we become is not good people. We are not made good men, good humans. We are not made righteous only. We are made into righteousness itself. Again, these are difficult words. This is hard to understand. It's not the way we're used to thinking. Um, for us to be righteousness, we, we have to recognize that God's justice, his goodness, his righteousness, it is your life lived for Christ. St. Irenaeus, he said, the glory of God is man fully alive, meaning the spirit of God fully at work in his new creation. So forgiveness, uh, as an example, forgiveness isn't something that exists without an object, right? It's not just an idea. You don't have any, you can't put your hands on forgiveness unless you forgive or are forgiven. Love is not something that exists as an idea alone. Similarly, righteousness takes on an existence only when something real is acted out. You are the one who is loved by God. You are who God forgives. In Christ, through his merits alone, you become the righteousness of God. The goodness and justice and holiness of God is acted out, made known, lived in real time in you. How else could Paul say, for me to live is Christ? Just as a sin offering would take on the sins of all who laid their hands on its head. And then you could, you could say, in a way, that lamb is sin. That what we're seeing slaughtered, it's not the lamb being slaughtered, it's sin being killed. It's not just Jesus on the cross, it's all of us, it's our sin. In the same way as a sinner puts his hand on a lamb and imputes his sin to that beast, God who is holy, who alone is holy, who alone is righteous, who alone is pure, has laid his hand on your head. He has created a new thing, and has made you his righteousness. It is his intention as the creator of new things to make you not a better version of your former self, but to unite you to the Son of God, to have your born-again life lived in such a way that reveals the glory of the eternal God to the world that he is saving. So now as new creations and ambassadors, you have been entrusted with the word of reconciliation. I plead with you, be reconciled to God. And then repeat that message. Repeat it to yourself so you don't forget it. Repeat it to the ones you love because God loves them more. Repeat it to the world that he is saving. Our God is reconciling the world to himself in Christ. And he has made us new as a way of showing his intention to make all things new.
Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. We worship you. We do not understand all the depths of your love for us. It is beyond comprehension. But we do pray that by your spirit, we would know the love that is without bounds, that we would be filled with all the fullness of God, that your gospel, which we are aware in this moment, is so far beyond us, that it would be in us and that it would flow out of us. Whether or not we understand its full depths, I pray that we would be faithful to it, faithful in it. I pray for your ambassadors here, your new creations, these earthen vessels containing heavenly, eternal glories, that it would be said of us as a church and the individuals here that we were faithful with these glories that you've entrusted us with. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Please stand. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. You are sent.